thank God because he's good, because his love never quits. Tell the world, Israel, his love never quits. And you, clan of Aaron, tell the world, his love never quits. And you who fear God, join in, his love never quits. The stone the mason discarded as flawed is now the capstone. This is God's work. We rub our eyes. We can hardly believe it. This is the very day God acted. Let's celebrate and be festive. Salvation now, God, salvation now. Oh yes, God, a free and full life. Blessed are you who enter in God's name. From God's house, we bless you. God is God. He has bathed us in light. Thank God. He's so good. His love never quits. Sing some songs. Did you know creation is talking to you? Wherever you go and whatever you do, the earth will keep giving you clue after clue so that you won't forget to remember what's true. Like every day when the sun rises high, the warmth that you feel is God's love by your side Oh, and just like the birds who keep humming their tune Remember God singing songs of joy over you
have kids or you are a kid, you can head on to the back and the other five or ten people that are here, we're just going to keep on worshiping. Woo! <laughs> to your ocean, 
There's no top to your mountain, no wind to your sky. There's no limit to your love, there's no bottom to your ocean. There's no top to your mountain, no wind to your sky. Karen is up for scripture reading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So thank you, Karen, Mrs. Pace, I should say, and thank you, Kyler. Um, if you'd like, you can, uh, yeah, you can have a seat, and you can turn with me if you'd like to First Peter chapter two. That's where we'll be this morning. So I know everyone here. I believe I know most everyone here. So don't necessarily need to introduce myself, um, but I am glad to be able to open the scriptures with you all this morning. Um, as you know, I usually get to sing and uh, lead you all in song, but um, when I do have the opportunity to uh, share in God's Word in this way with you, um, it is a privilege, and I'm honored to be able to do it. Amber told me that I was too serious last weekend, and so I just I want to open with a joke. I even put on my dad pants because this is a dad joke. So I, you know, and it's Fourth of July, and so I just want to break the ice. I don't want to be too serious. Um, you know, obviously we had some comic relief last week, I know, Chris, but I want to make sure that I'm not too serious this week. So, in honor of Independence Day, what was the most popular dance in 1776? Pam, anything? Independence. That's pretty good, right? Like I said, I wore, I wore my, dad, my dad pants just for that. But anyways, um, as you all know, um, those of you that were here last week or maybe you got caught up online, last week we started a new series in First Peter. Um, and we're going to continue that today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing the letter this morning, um, but I do kind of want to just help us get our bearings and kind of get um, our footing as we begin. Last Sunday, um, we saw or I made the argument that this letter in particular might speak to us into our specific moment, our specific time, um, given the season that we all kind of find ourselves in. Because this, this letter was written to a group of churches 
um, that have all recently experienced a difficult season. In many ways, they're in the midst of a difficult season. Um, to use the language that Peter prefers to use, he writes to a group of churches that have been dispersed. You saw that in chapter 1 that have been scattered, he calls them exiles. Some of the language he uses is that of aliens and strangers and foreigners. This is a group of churches that has walked through suffering and are now in a season um, of disruption where they are tasked kind of with um, reorienting themselves, right? They are tasked with reorienting themselves um, not only with uh, a world that has been changed, um, but into a future that seems uncertain and unknown, right? That is, last week what we said was that this letter is important to us because we too find ourselves in a similar spot. We find ourselves coming out of a season, for some of you, um, filled with suffering, for most of us filled with some form of kind of alienation, isolation, for some of us, maybe a season full of disillusionment, confusion. And so we, too, are faced with the task of reorienting ourselves to a world that feels changed, feels somehow different, and reorienting ourselves to a God who has not changed and who has, is no different. So Peter began his letter in chapter 1 by drawing our attention to hope which we had uh, Mrs. Pace just read for us. I wanted to begin with that. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I wanted to remind us of where Peter begins the letter. That's why we had Miss Pace read it, because everything that we kind of have to say this morning and everything that we'll kind of say going forward in the rest of this letter in many ways, assumes this about us and about the people that Peter writes to. It assumes that we have been born again to a living hope. And so, as I said earlier, I invite you to turn with me. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning of 1 Peter. And I think um, that as we read the letter, as we look at chapter 2 this morning, um, I want to draw your attention to kind of three things that I think we'll find in today's text. I think we'll see in 1 Peter chapter 2 that being born again into a living hope as a chosen people catches us up into three things. A people, a purpose, and a posture. So we'll just kind of go through it. We're going to actually start in verse 2, but I invite you, um, it won't be on your screen, so if you have your Bible, whatever text you read from, I invite you, we'll begin in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, keep in mind what Christine read for us to begin our gathering from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So first we begin, we see a people. One author and pastor commenting on this letter says it this way, we can never say it often enough. The Bible is addressed for the most part, not to individuals, but to the people of God. As Peter puts it in various ways over and over throughout the letter, the people of God have been constituted not by their own preferences or choices, but by God's prior choice. The church lives out of its foundation upon the living stone. God precedes the people. The people precedes the person. The person is constituted by being incorporated into the people. So we find ourselves a people. All that we do, all that we aspire to accomplish as the church, in all our efforts at evangelism or serving our city, in our social and political change even, or our attempts at it, we do so together as a people. Now, this has always been God's intention for a people to represent him here on earth as it is in heaven. This is not to suggest that we as individual believers do not have um, any particular purpose on our own, but it is to say that there is a distinct manifestation of God's presence of the Holy Spirit that is evidenced by the corporate expression of his church. It's not merely when we gather in a space or or a, a place like this on a Sunday morning, but in our collective life together. We spent uh, about a month, just uh, last, last month, talking about this very thing, our life together as a community, and all that we do and how we live together. But look again at these verses with me, and I think we'll see just what kinds of people we are. We talk a lot um, at Christ City about our core identity, our fundamental identity as God's children, right? Peter's already kind of hinted at this in, in uh chapter 1, right, when he says we are born again into a living hope. That's this image of being children, being reborn into God's family. Here, though, in uh, chapter 2, Peter kind of picks up some different images, which will be kind of more social, political, religious. They'll be less familial, right? Here, Peter reminds us of some of the other aspects of our identity using some Old Testament images, that of priests, that of kings, and that of prophets. And I know that these categories can be kind of problematic. I know that they have quite a bit of overlap. Um, Some of us may feel that they're a bit um, reductive, but I think um, in 1 Peter chapter 2 in particular, I think if we kind of pick these up and tease them out a little bit, it'll be helpful for us this morning. So let's look at them in turn. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation called to proclaim, 
as a prophetic people. Let's look at each one in turn. Um, and I want to invite you, as we kind of consider these, don't consider them for yourself as an individual necessarily, but let's consider them um, how we as a people, as a collective, as Christ City Church might live into these identities as priests, royalty, and prophets. First, the priesthood. We are priests. Now, so what does that mean? Priests are often described as mediators between God and humanity. And I, I think we're all pretty familiar with that definition. This seems right. God's people are called to mediate between God and man. You might think of it this way. This is kind of my translation in some ways. God's church, God's people, ought to be a place, ought to be a people who introduce God to the world and the world to God. Now, of course, God doesn't need our help to introduce himself. And yet, he has chosen a people as the primary means by which he makes himself known to the world. Now, priests, we see this in the Old Testament, have a certain intimacy with God. They have a distinct access to God. And they display this goodness, the greatness, the glory, and the grace of God to the rest of the world. And this is what it means when Peter says we are a royal priesthood, that we kind of pick up this task, fill this office, and we display and we mediate the character, the nature, the kindness and the goodness and the holiness of God to the rest of the world. And so I invite you now, just kind of in uh, the middle here, ask yourself how we, as a chosen people, might display, might mediate, might show the world who God is as priests. Second, we are kings, or we are royalty. Lots of times, uh, I know I've heard it used this way, lots of times when we think about um, this kind of kingly office or this um, royal um, status that we have as, as believers, so often I hear it used kind of in a really reductive way of like, you have good leadership or you have good organizational skills or you have good administrative skills. And this, of course, is a consequence of thinking about these categories um, at merely an individual level, right? But as we have seen and as I've already said, um, we're thinking about these roles and how they articulate the kinds of people we are as a collective, not who we are as individuals, but who we are as a people. And so if kingship isn't about organizing or governing or leading, then what does it mean to say that we are royal priests? Some of what Peter has already told us, uh, some of this Peter's already told us in chapter 1, that to be royalty means we have an inheritance. Mrs. Pace just read it for us. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. As children of the king, we are royalty. And it's more... Um, Really, this is more about status and identity than anything else. It is who we are, not necessarily what we do, that first identifies us as royalty. 
But I do want to point out that being royalty does have kind of two important implications for us as a people. First, we are a sign and a symbol. We are a sign and a symbol. That is, we ought to exemplify God by how we live. We ought to live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We represent God to the world because we are those who take Jesus seriously when he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. Number two, the kings in the Old Testament um, were not called to organization or leadership or administration. They were called to foster and maintain covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. And so we, as royalty, as members of a royal family, in a sense, remind each other and the world of the kingdom of God. That is why in Deuteronomy 17, Moses is kind of outlining the job description for the future kings of Israel. He's letting them know what their roles will be. And in Deuteronomy 17, Moses tells them this. He shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statues and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in the kingdom. This is what it means that we are royalty, that we are sons and daughters of the king. We are to maintain and foster and cultivate covenant, kingdom faithfulness. So I invite you now, take a moment. Remember who we are as royal priests. And then ask how we, as a chosen people, might represent God here on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, we are a prophetic people. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that we are prophets? It's actually quite simple, I think. Um, it means we hear from God. It means we hear from God. We are people who hear God's voice. We hear him in his word, in our scriptures. We hear him in prayer. And we discern his voice together in the contexts and circumstances of our life. I think a lot of times we think about this kind of prophetic office and we immediately assume it's like some cranky, curmudgeonly you know, person who's just like yelling at everyone um, as if the only thing that we ever hear from God is how bad we're doing and how awful we've messed everything up. And while sometimes we'll certainly hear God's judgment as a father, as a king, he will certainly correct us. But look again at what Peter says here in verse 9. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Because those who hear from God also hear him speak mercy, also hear him speak grace and forgiveness and patience and compassion and steadfast love. As a prophetic people who hear from God, we hear not only judgment, but mercy. Not only law, but grace. Not only correction, but comfort. Not only admonishment, but acceptance. Remember, we are a chosen people. We have been accepted, adopted into God's family. By the way, you can see this kind of played out and exemplified in um, verse 12. I'm sorry, in verse 10, where Peter basically directly quotes from the prophetic book of Hosea. Once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now you are a people. This comes from, as I said, from Hosea. So some of you may know this story, so I'll just, I'm going to retell it really quickly, though. Um, in the book of Hosea, God calls Hosea to marry this woman named Gomer, and Gomer is uh, a prostitute. God says, Hosea, go and marry this woman and have children with her, which already raises lots of questions, because throughout the whole book, you're not really sure if these children are Hosea's or not. And then God says to him, he says, have a daughter and name her no mercy. And he says, have a son and name the son not my people. And God does this because he is making a point about Israel's unfaithfulness. But then God says something um, that we should note, that we should notice. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 10 he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God, say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. And by the end of the story, God tells Israel, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. So what's the point? The point is, as a prophetic people, we not only speak God's holiness, God's justice, God's law, his correctment and judgment when we fall short or we get off course, but as Hosea even demonstrates, we also speak mercy. Grace, forgiveness. And so, again, take a moment, consider. What might we, as those who have been called out of darkness and into marvelous light, expect to hear from God? What should we expect to hear from God? And how might we, as a chosen people, then proclaim what we hear to those around us? So let's keep reading Verse 11. <clears throat> Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So as I'm sure you've noticed, we've kind of already begun shading into the second of our three headings, right? We said we'd see a people, and then we said we'd see a purpose. And so as we've kind of even been talking about some of these categories of prophet, priest, king, some of this has already started to kind of come out. But I think in verses 11 and 12, um, not only in those verses, but just in this chapter in general, we also begin to see that the purpose of God's people is kind of twofold. We see that we have both an inward and an outward purpose. An inward and an outward purpose. So first, let's look at our inward purpose. Verse 11, we saw this as well um, in verse 5. It calls us to abstain against the passions of the flesh. And then in verse 5, that we are ourselves like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And so this is what we might call our inward purpose. If we go to the letters of Paul, he says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love comes from Ephesians chapter 4. And so, as a chosen people, as prophets and priests and kings, we are called to build each other up. To call each other again and again, to remind each other, to call each other towards holiness, righteousness, and faithfulness. So our inward purpose is the edification and spiritual formation of God's church. Or to quote Paul again from Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here again, we often read this verse, or we hear it quoted, and we immediately kind of apply it to ourselves as individuals. But remember, Paul, like Peter here, addresses a people. Therefore, beloved is plural. And so we all participate in this purpose together, working out our salvation. Not just a few individuals, not just a few leaders, but all of us are in this together. Or as one commentator puts it, we must understand that true spirituality is neither just an experience nor a technique, but a relationship of obedience and trust to the one and only living God. And this is our inward purpose as a people. We call each other again and again to return to this relationship of obedience and trust. But the church, the people of God, um, not only has an inward purpose, being built up as a spiritual house, but we also have an outward purpose. Verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is, Keep your conduct among the watching world honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let me, let me just try to ask it in a simpler way or to translate it a bit. Um, what does the rest of the world see when they look at God's church? What does the world see when they look at Christ's city church? Now, obviously, the point here is, in the first place, that 
really, ultimately, we don't really care that they look at the church. Ultimately, I think our hope would be that they would see Jesus, that they would turn and look at Jesus. But remember, as those who mediate between God and man as priests, as those who extend God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, as royalty, as kings and queens, and as those who speak and demonstrate all that we hear from God as prophets, we should always be mindful of the role we play and how the rest of the world comes to know God or doesn't. Now, this is, you know, admittedly, this is kind of mysterious, I think. And ultimately, God is responsible for changing hearts. Ultimately, God is responsible for saving souls. But our scriptures commission us again and again. They give us this charge that as God's chosen people, as his church, we are a means by which his purposes are carried out and consummated in the world. Notice, too, that Peter here encourages us towards good deeds. So verse 11, I think, is where often a lot of us just stop. The idea is that we just need to stop doing wrong things. We need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. But here in the next several, several verses, Peter encourages us actually towards something. Towards positive activities that actually make the world a better place. In other words, we're called out of darkness and into light. And so perhaps it is not enough to simply stop doing wrong, but the call of God's people or on God's people is we are actually challenged to start doing good. I think this has always been our charge. Since the very beginning, God has commissioned us, has given us this charge to cultivate, to make the world a better place. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. Now, admittedly, there's a tension in all that we've kind of said about the inward and the outward purpose of the church. And the church, um, I think most of us would agree, um, historically has had a, had kind of found it problematic or has struggled, rather, to strike a balance between these two purposes. Richard Foster it's helpful here. He says this, We must boldly teach the essential connections between the inner and the outer aspects. We can no longer allow people to engage in pious exercises that are divorced from the hard social realities of life. Nor can we tolerate a radical social witness that is devoid of inward spiritual vitality. Our preaching and teaching needs to hold these elements in unity. So let's just keep reading. Um, I think we'll see in the next couple verses this tension kind of get further fleshed out for us and um, maybe make some more sense of it. Beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, 
love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So you probably noticed the tension there again. Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He says, live as people who are free and yet be servants of God. This word here for servants is the Greek word uh, douloi. Actually, Preston can probably pronounce it better than I can. It's probably douloi or something like that. But <clears throat> This word can actually be translated slave. So live as free, but live as slaves to God. Honor everyone, but love the brotherhood. Fear God, but honor the emperor. So we touched on this a bit last week, but I'm going to reiterate it briefly again. I mean, it's 4th of July after all, so you may have noticed that all this morning and then last week especially, we've been using a lot of kind of political and legal categories, right? We normally, you know, kind of instead of our normal familial categories. Like I said earlier, we normally talk about ourselves as children of God, as the family of God. We're kind of not using those as much right now. And this is because 1 Peter is a letter that is very much concerned with the social status and political problems that face the early church. And so immediately we all kind of get uncomfortable. I noticed, I noticed this last week as we kind of talked about this, that this is just a, a weird thing for us. As modern people, we kind of see religion over here and then social or society and p- political issues are kind of over here, and we kind of want to keep them at arm's length. But like I suggested last week, and I'll say again, um, I think we do ourselves a disservice if we don't read First Peter and take seriously the kind of social political issues that he's addressing and make an, at least an attempt to translate them into our own day. So two, two points to be made here quickly. On the one hand, this is correct. Religion, society, pol- political stuff, um, the Christian faith in particular, they don't go hand in hand. Jesus did not found a government in the human sense of the word. But on the other hand, if our religious beliefs do not influence our social and political practice, then we probably need to ask why. Because according to Peter, here in chapter 2, several other places in our scriptures, and by the very words of Jesus himself, we should expect our faith to shape how we live. And this surely means that it will influence. And this surely means that it will influence, that is, speak into how we think about and engage in the social and political issues that we face. And I don't need to remind you of how many there are in our time and place. One commentator speaking about these verses in particular says it this way. This is how religion, the Christian faith in particular, ought to function in this country. Religion is neither a prop for politics nor a sanctification of governmental wishes. Instead, it is a voice in the wilderness, an alternative society to the prevailing culture and status quo. And it's precisely for this reason that Peter uses these terms, sojourner and exile, which some translations read as aliens and strangers. 
So last week I said we should not merely and only read Peter as saying we are spiritually exiled, as this is just an analogy or an allegory for our spiritual exile. You know, most often we read it because we are citizens of heaven, not of this world. We are in the world, but not of the world. And so um, last week I said, so instead we should kind of pay attention to the social and political status of the church in Peter's time and in our own. But I think I would say it a bit differently this week. As I've kind of read more and prayed more about it, I think I would say it this way instead. That if we understand ourselves as having a true citizenship in some other kingdom, in some other realm, if you will, that if we understand our spiritual status as citizens of the kingdom of God and therefore as refugees in this world, in this place, that we are in the world but not of the world, then of course this will have consequences socially and politically for us as a people. Let me say it a different way, because when we as the people of God begin to follow Jesus together and allow his way to speak truth into the realities of our life here on this earth and in this time, which certainly includes social and political realities, then ultimately we will find ourselves no longer making sense and perhaps even seeming threatening to those who follow some other way, who adhere to some other truth and seek a different kind of life. That is, we should expect to be misunderstood. We should expect to feel a bit homeless and a bit marginalized. I think the way I talked about it Last week was, I feel, often in the middle. So I think I would just simply at this point um, say something like this. Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the good news of the gospel is offense enough. We already read it in Psalm 118. Christine read it for us. We read it again in 1 Peter chapter 2, that the good news of the gospel, what Jesus came announcing, is offense enough. It's reason enough for an unbelieving world to stumble and to reject Jesus, his gospel, and his church. And so I wonder if the church ought to strive to live in such a way and engage in social and political discourse in such a way that we don't give a watching world a reason, any other reason to stumble or to reject the message of the gospel. But how do we do this? How is it that we live out of the foundation we have in Jesus Christ as a chosen people into the purposes of God here and now? How do we strive to live in such a way that we don't give the world any other reason to reject the gospel, to reject our Savior? And so I think finally, as we kind of close, I'll I'll keep this part brief, but Um, I think finally we'll see that the way we do this is we adopt a certain posture as we live in this world, as exiles, as strangers. So let's uh, conclude chapter 2. We're going to read to the end of the chapter now, starting in verse 18. Listen to what Peter says. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, 
When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So I think in this verse, we see the posture that we are to take. That in all that we've said today, all that we've seen in chapter 2, that as a chosen people, as royal priests, as a holy nation, as a counterculture or as strangers and aliens, as exiles, or perhaps as social and political weirdos, however you want to say it, that our posture, we saw in these verses, is one of submission, service, and suffering. I'll say that again. Submission, service, and suffering. I think Peter is relatively clear here. Why is this our posture? Because this was the posture that Jesus took of submission, service, and suffering. Now, I know this probably raises tons of questions for many of us, um, especially this notion of submission. That's probably the, the hardest one for us to kind of um, make sense of. You're probably wondering what it would mean to submit to every human institution. What does it mean to be subject to governments that perhaps you don't agree with, to policy decisions that maybe you didn't vote for? What does it mean to be in submission to human institutions, political entities that, in some cases, you actually believe to do more harm than good? But I I just think we should read carefully again what Peter just said. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. To this you have been called. And who reviled Jesus? At whose hands did Jesus suffer? Human institutions, social and political authorities, religious institutions. And Peter says, Jesus left you and I an example so that we might follow in his steps. So a people, a purpose, and a posture of submission, service, and suffering. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, and admittedly I've given you quite a lot today. You probably feel a bit overwhelmed. 
the charge we receive in 1 Peter chapter 2 to be a chosen people, prophets, priests, and kings called to this kind of inward and outward purpose of working out our salvation while being a witness to the world, all this while taking this posture of submission and service and suffering should feel impossible. It should overwhelm us. But here's the thing, or because here's the thing, rather, um, we can't do this, not without God's help. The call on God's church, on us as a people, um, is nothing short of impossible apart from the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, his power working in us. So I invite you to look to Jesus this morning and to think about all that we've said. Before I pray and close, I just want to remind you that in Jesus, we see the kind of people that we now are. In Jesus, we see the purposes that we have been called to. We see the posture that we are to take. But again, more than that, we find that if we receive the life that Jesus offers that we can actually live into these realities as God's chosen people. So let's pray now and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be a part of your plan and your purpose here on earth for carrying out your intentions partnering with you in all of your work here that we get to be a chosen people that you have chosen us that you have called us out of darkness into marvelous light Lord we thank you for the the wonder that this is that you would choose people like us to use to work through Lord we we pray together this morning that as we go from this place that we would see ourselves as a chosen people, that we would look to Jesus in how we might live, in how we might engage the world, in how we might um, share the good news of the gospel with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family. Lord, I pray that you would remind each of us that we are integral and in being built up into a spiritual house, that we each have a part to play, a role to play. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would rest firmly on the foundation, the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. May we see him, may we see in him not only an example, not only a pattern, but may we receive the life that he offers us so that we might actually live into the realities of your church. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I was deep in prayer whenever he was <laughs> praying. I forgot to come up here. Hmm. 
Yeah, God, I just, I do just, um, Lord, I confess, this is, it, uh, it's hard for me, Lord. Um, there's a lot of things in life I'm not good at, and there's other things that are just unbearably, seemingly unbearably difficult in submitting to authorities. Um, when you feel wronged and things like that, or you feel like you didn't do anything wrong, or uh, that's just so hard, God. And I just thank you for the opportunities that you give us um, relationally uh, with family members and with uh, all kinds of just people around us in our lives, Lord, um, to literally die to ourselves um, in, in, in this way and taking that posture on. And I just ask that you would help us um, to do that, I pray that you would help um, these truths to sink in our hearts even more as we just worship right now. In Jesus' name. You guys want to stand up? We're going to sing some songs.
that should be right in front of you on the chairs in front of you. So if you think about it, um, communion, as we receive communion um, every Sunday, if you think about it, communion shows us week in, week out, reminds us, points us to towards um, the posture that we saw there at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2. That is, communion shows us Jesus in the ultimate act of submission, service, and suffering. So as we receive communion uh, this morning, I didn't grab one for myself. I'm so sorry. So as we receive communion this morning, I invite you to read along with me. This is our text from 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Receive broken body, poured out blood. Thank you. 
our eyes upon you, what we can let go of ourselves, we can let go of our own rights, and we have the opportunity to be transformed in our inner man uh, in a way that can reveal your great glory uh, to the world as we live our lives submitted um, uh, to those around us in the, for the sake of love. Um, would you teach us more this week what that means? Would you help us to keep our eyes on you, God? Um, that we might be able to take on the posture that um, would make us the people that you've called us to be, that we already are. Lord, I thank you that you've made us a kingdom of priests. I thank you that every single person in this room has um, people in their lives that God placed there, coworkers and family members and friends. So God, would you teach us um, to listen, uh, to listen for you, uh, to listen to the things that you have for us to share to other people, God, that we would be a people that would hear your voice and would be able to share who you are and what you've done, what you want to do, what you're doing to the rest of the world, God. Um, we love you and pray that in Jesus' name. Uh, to, we're going to do the little uh, benediction here. This is First Peter 2, 9 through 10. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Love you guys. See y'all next week.